Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I am your host, Kirk Bear. Hope you're enjoying your weekend so far. Uh, but, of course, you can listen to us every Saturday morning here on WHBL. And all over the world on the interwebs. So, I don't know how many of you were following the Alex Murdoch. Murdoch? Murdoch? It's pronounced a number of different ways by the media. Uh, I would say Murdoch, um, trial that occurred, actually wrapped up this week, and very lengthy trial with a lot of dynamics and all kinds of disputes over how things happened, how the investigation worked. Um, but a big feature of the case was that Alex Murdoch uh, testified in his own behalf. And I wanted to talk about the significance of that in criminal cases. And it's generally accepted that based on jury instructions and the way that the law works, that someone's testimony or lack thereof, if they're charged with a crime, should should not be considered at all by a jury. But I think it's also recognized that the reality is that um, someone has the right to take the stand and talk about what happened from their perspective. Um, And when you think about how the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment and all those things intertwine and relate to the burden of proof that is on the prosecution and always remains on the prosecution in the vast majority of cases, and I'll put a little footnote on that and we'll come back to it in a bit, but... The idea behind those very important rights is that in any case where the government is attempting to affect someone's freedom by means of a conviction and later sentence, it should not be part of the equation that a defendant has to participate in that process. And this was designed to keep it so... uh, when there were adverse actions being taken against citizens, that it be based on the strength of evidence gathered by the government authorities that does not involve uh, the defendant making statements or being scrutinized, uh, because that very notion was offensive to the the founders envisioning the relationship between the government and citizens. Put another way, uh, there was rampant uh, a rampant practice in the colonial era when government officials would basically uh, force people to say things, um, many of which were not true, but were coerced, compelled, etc. But in addition to that, this recognizes a long-standing reality that. When you have people whose jobs rely upon obtaining evidence, it's certainly easier (laughs) to put someone on the spot and then gauge their reactions uh, verbally, non-verbally, and add layers of investigatorial opinion on top of that. And what I mean by that is that there are many, many cases where someone may be interrogated and they deny what they're accused of, but the manner in which they denied it, or how they phrased something, or 
the fact that they seemed to be evasive or uncomfortable or didn't make eye contact, all kinds of stuff that, you know, really shouldn't be part of the equation at all, becomes a centerpiece of the case. You know, there's this jury instruction that all jurors receive, and it's this is how it reads in Wisconsin. It's similar in other jurisdictions, but um, it has to do with reasonable doubt. And the judge will tell the jury that you are to give the defendant the benefit of every reasonable doubt. However, you are not to search for doubt. You are to search for the truth. And that comes from a longstanding principle that juries are supposed to be seeking justice. And they're supposed to be finding the right answer. Um, and hopefully, we all hope that when they render a verdict, we call it a just and true verdict. Those are two things. Just means that it was properly obtained, that the burden of proof remaining on the prosecution was respected, that there were no adverse inferences from the various aspect of the, the trials that... Um, would unfairly prejudice a defendant, but a true verdict. So what does that mean? Does it mean that whatever the prosecution alleges that the person did is in fact what the person did and how the person did it? It's hard to say because I would venture a guess that that hardly ever happens. <laughs> and if you can think about the way that a development of a case works, the gathering of evidence, the filing of charges, proceeding to trial, and you've all seen it on TV, or if you've been in court and observed a trial, you know that because it is an adversarial system, I know we're using that word a lot, but, um, you know, it's one side against the other, it's a battle. And both sides have various types of ammunition to fight that battle. But it really comes down to the brains of the prosecutor and the defense lawyer or the team of prosecutors and team of defense lawyers, you know, battling wits and coming up with creative ways to argue the significance of small facts and adding them up to make a creative argument as to why this means someone's guilty or is not guilty. And the thing that's always bothered me about that is there are so many variations in uh, eloquence and skill and personalities and what kind of tie or, you know, dress a person is wearing in court that can have all of these subtle influences in that process that it's really, you know, nothing short of manipulation of facts. That includes the way that witnesses are questioned and cross-examined, the way the rules of evidence may, in fact, stifle some of that exploration, uh, because the manner in which questions are asked is not right, or the way in which uh, someone answers isn't doesn't fit within what we think is fair, or that mistrust that exists in the rules of evidence that juries will be confused or misled by information. So it goes through all these filters um, as to what is actually presented to a jury. And to say in the end that what is being presented to them is the quote-unquote truth or that it leads to a true verdict is really kind of bizarre because 
that's not how trials work. And, and that might seem odd. That might seem crazy. Like, why are we even doing these trials then if it doesn't have anything to do with reality because of all these filters that are in place? And that is a good question. But we also recognize the imprecision in this process and the fact that you know, a prosecutor will try and frame things in a certain way and draw these connections, as I said, little little facts that add up to a big theory. And the defense's job is to challenge that. This idea that you get two sides in a courtroom and based on a thorough examination by asking, one side asks a lot of questions, the other side asks a lot of questions that if you ask enough of those questions, that somehow the truth will find its way, will bubble to the surface, and it will be apparent to the jury at that point. Well, you know, it's kind of fiction to believe that when a jury is seeking, quote-unquote, the truth, that it's done well through this process. Now, we have to believe that it works, because otherwise we wouldn't have a society that could have this process in place. As I said many times before, you know, this is a process that is well more than 300 years old that we go through where people get on the stand and jurors watch the person and they analyze uh, the believability or the reliability of, of the statements that are being made in court. And, um, Funny that we don't have any better way of doing it after all this time. And there have been advances on what's allowed and what isn't. And, and um, of course, there's been a recent trend in allowing more leeway for the prosecution as it relates to people who are designated as victims or witnesses of a crime, you know, to help the prosecution a little bit. Um, we're still struggling with how to do that. Uh, because it's kind of still working, winding its way through the system and the courts and everything else. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the Murdoch trial, what happened, and some of my opinions about uh, why the verdict is what it is. And we'll talk about that when we come back, right after these messages. Welcome back. If you watch the Alex Murdoch trial took, taking place in South Carolina, um, you probably know that uh, Murdoch was found guilty. Uh, the murder of his family. And uh, a centerpiece of the case was the fact that uh, Murdoch himself took the stand and testified and then was cross-examined. And this was all something that occurred for hours and hours and hours of testimony. And what I want to talk about is, first of all, how do how do I think that that impacted the jury's verdict? And I'll point out that they only deliberated for three hours, in spite of the fact that this was a very complex, multi-day, very long, complicated trial. And when you get a verdict that quick in a case where there's obviously a lot to contemplate, that tends to tell us that there was something that was just overwhelmingly convincing some aspect of the case that the jury didn't even need uh, a whole lot of time to really thoroughly discuss. Well, for such a long trial and for so many issues that were raised, three hours is an extraordinarily quick verdict. Now, you know, sometimes a quick verdict can be not guilty because the state utterly failed 
to meet their burden of proof, and that's obvious by the time the jury begins deliberating. But other times, as this, um, by the time jurors get to start their deliberations, it must have been very clear to all those concerned that he was guilty. And I think that the fact that he took the stand and was grilled on all this stuff, and, and if you saw any of it, there's emotion involved. We're talking about, you know, an extremely violent act. And there were a lot of things in Murdaugh's past that did not help him. His drug addiction, stealing from, the, you know, the firm that he worked for, all kinds of things that made him look bad that would not have necessarily come into play, at least not as um, centrally focused in the case if he had not taken the stand. So, in a lot of cases, when the defendant decides he or she is going to testify, it becomes, you know, what we always say is that it kind of gets away from proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I say that because what happens when someone's on the stand can be so unpredictable and varied, not just as it relates to whether the person's telling the truth or not, but how how that person responds to questions. Um, how intelligent the person is. And by the way, you know, there's no requirement that somebody be of a particular intellect, uh, you know, in society. Someone can be, um, uh, you know, very nervous in public. Someone can not be very articulate. Someone can be relatively uneducated. And none of those things have anything to do with uh, whether someone is or isn't capable of taking the stand, but let's start with the ground rules. The ground rules in any case is that the defendant does not have to testify and the prosecution can't compel that. They can't comment on it. They can't bring in evidence that the person invoked the right to remain silent or the right to counsel at some previous point because it's a right that it doesn't matter why someone exercises that. And when they do, it's off limits. Uh, Very, very bright line that if someone's going to try and get me to say something and then repeat it later in court, or if I'm on the stand and they ask me a question that is confusing or badgering or an unfair question, and if the judge overrules an objection, you know, how the words come out of one's mouth. And in this case, in Murdoch's case, you know, there was a lot of crying on the stand and things like that. And... Then it's coming down to things that are so inexact. You know, the jury's looking at him and thinking, gee, are those real tears? Are they crocodile tears? Is he putting on a show? Uh, How good of an actor is this person? Or do I genuinely feel sorry for him? And on and on and on. And those are all things that really have nothing to do anymore with the strength of the government's case. And it gets away from those very ideals that are embodied in the Bill of Rights that that shouldn't be part of the process. On the other hand, the right to state one's case and the right to personally take an oath to tell the truth and purportedly then do so is just as much of a fundamental right. Um, But that's where things get confusing because, you know, it doesn't say that in the Constitution. What it says is that someone has the right to remain silent. And, you know, it's sort of a, 
ipso facto logical stre- you know, conclusion from there that if one has a right, they also have the right to waive that right. And that's where all of the litigation that relates to um, the Fifth Amendment you know, and whether someone needs or wants counsel at a particular part in the process is something that is properly respected. And in the vast majority of cases, 95 plus percent of cases, we see people waive their rights um, to their detriment. Even people that are innocent of what they're accused of, even people that did not do what the government thinks they did because of all these outlying factors that I've discussed. So if the the bedrock principle is that the Fifth Amendment says one shall not be compelled to um, testify against oneself and put another way, participate in their own prosecution, stemming from the fact that there were abuses of that practice before we became a country and before, frankly, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that were later became part of our government. Um, the fact that they're there to protect us from basically too much power in the government, it's very ironic that it's traditional and um, pervasive that those rights are frequently waived for one reason or another. So, you know, looking back at this Murdoch case, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking or hindsight's twenty twenty. you can always say those types of things, probably would not have been a good idea for him to testify, right? Well, he lost, and he lost pretty quickly after only three hours of deliberation. So, you know, I watched the testimony, and there were times when I just cringed because I could see that all these other variables were being injected into this, and, you know, you can't blame the prosecutor for vigorously cross-examining somebody because if someone puts themselves on the stand, what what he or she is doing is opening themselves up to vigorous cross-examination. And anything that the person might say, you know, good, bad, or neutral, is fair game for impeachment or uh, really the opportunity to have the jury examine this person and think to themselves, gee, do I believe him or not? So that's the crux of it. Um, And when I say it kind of eliminates the burden of proof, it comes down to, number one, does the jury believe everything that the defendant is testifying to? And two, do they like or dislike the defendant? And that seems like that's something that shouldn't matter because a jury should be able to say, well, I don't like this guy, but you know, I don't think the prosecution's met its burden and I'm going to find him not guilty. That's how it should work. But the reality is, how how do we really expect that to pan out? And then you add all these other factors in. Um, sometimes, you know, when there's a defendant who's on the stand and um, he or she is being treated very poorly by the prosecutor, it, sometimes it can kind of highlight the fact that the prosecution is trying to overpower the facts, trying to force the facts into a particular theory. And sometimes how they treat a defendant when they're on the stand can play right into that and kind of highlight to the jury that this is an overreach or whatever. But think about it this way. If the jury doesn't believe every single thing, every single thing that 
a defendant says on the stand, it's very difficult to square all of that with a finding of not guilty. Because if they say, I didn't believe him on this point, or I didn't believe half of what he said, or, well, he really got this one part wrong, I don't think that's feasible. It, it bypasses where the burden of proof really is. So, you know, that's one of the main reasons why a defendant normally shouldn't take the stand, even if the bat person is truly innocent, truly not guilty. It just leads to diverting um, the inquiry toward things that are not supposed to be part of the process. And I don't think a lot of people understand that, but that's why the instructions that are given to juries are so forceful on the issue that you cannot in any way consider the fact that a defendant didn't testify when that's the case. All right, time for another break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I want to talk about another gray area of the law that comes into play when someone does invoke either their right to remain silent or their right to counsel. And I'll walk you through a scenario that's pretty common. Uh, someone gets brought in for questioning. And let's say it's that situation where Miranda is required. And if you know anything about the situation, I'll just briefly describe uh, what that means. Miranda is basically the reading of your rights. We've seen it on TV a lot, right? Um, but it's not required every single time that the police have contact with somebody. Like if you are lost and looking for directions and you come up to a police officer and say, Hey, I'm looking for, you know, the coffee shop that's supposed to be downtown. Do you know what street it's on? The cop isn't then going to say, before I can answer your question, I have to read you your rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to counsel. They're not going to do that, right? Um, likewise, if somebody is not in custody uh, at that time, because custody is kind of a threshold issue where those rights kick in. Now, it doesn't say that in the Constitution. This is based on case law development after um, many, many years of litigation. So first... Um, it's not every single encounter that the police may have with somebody where they have to read rights. But in those situations where they do, it's two things. One, the person's in custody. And I'll put that in quotes, air quotes, in custody, because it can mean what you think, like someone's in jail. or And they've been handcuffed and they've been brought in, whether they want to come in or not. But it can also be where a person doesn't feel that they're free to leave um, under the circumstances. But it's got to be beyond a temporary detention. The second part of it is that the questions have to be interrogational in nature. In other words, designed to elicit inculpatory information. Information that would be against that person's best interests to answer. That's based on what the question is and how it's asked. So, we see this a lot, where somebody is read their Miranda warnings because it's required under the law then the vast majority of people end up saying, yes, I'll talk to you, I'll waive my rights. And then what happens in some cases is that some, at some point in the progress of this interrogation, someone says, you know what, at this point, after an hour of questioning, I want to invoke my right to remain silent. Or at this point, I think I'm going to ask for a lawyer, or I am going to ask for a lawyer after there's already been an hour or whatever amount of time of interrogation. So 
depending upon what the person says and how they say it and so on, it may lead to the complete secession of um, questioning. It may mean that the officer has to go to a different area of questioning, or it may mean that they have to stop altogether. Again, it depends on how the person phrases their invocation of rights. So then let's say we have an incomplete interview, incomplete interrogation in the sense that many questions have been answered, but at some point the the accused person says, I want to stop this, which they're allowed to do. Then, as you probably are aware, all of those questions that were asked before the person invoked their rights are admissible. Because in a chronological time-based analysis of this, there's a waiver of rights, there is a discussion, there is a supposedly voluntary set of statements. And then at some point, chronologically, time-wise, in that process, that invocation of rights occurs and it stops. Invariably, that there would have been more questioning. I mean, I can't say invariably. I suppose there's a situation where someone would say, I want to invoke my right to remain silent, and then the officer says, oh, well, that's fine because I don't have any more questions for you anyway. <clears throat> that probably never happens, but I suppose it could. So then we have this situation, and this is sticky when you think about it. So now the prosecution has some statements that they would like to present to the jury. They may be, in fact, against the person's interest, or they may appear to be that way. And it gets sticky because uh, a lot of times prosecutors will say, well, when you interviewed the defendant, you asked him this and he said that. Uh, yes, but did he say anything about such and such, which is basically where the question, that's the question where the person invoked their right to remain silent, okay? In that scenario, prosecutor can't comment on the fact that that invocation was made, can't say, hey, he wanted to remain silent on that, right? Because that would imply guilt, and it also, if you think in the bigger picture, if that were the case, then it, the silence would be used against the person. Remember, that's part of Miranda. Your silence cannot be used against you. So what we see prosecutors do a lot of is, that in fact, they are using someone's silence against them because an interview was incomplete. It's a trick. And they do it all the time. And it's, it's actually permitted in many circumstances. And this bothers me tremendously. So someone says, I'm not going to talk anymore. The, the question you just asked is, it went too far. Or They don't even have to provide an explanation. They just say, I plead the fifth. You know, and then they, whatever, the fact that the person said, I want to remain silent, cannot be told to the jury. But what we see so many times is the prosecution say, well, during your questioning of the defendant, did he, did he truthfully tell, you know, I can't say truthfully, but did he tell you that he drove the vehicle from the scene? Did that, was that something that he answered questions about? <laughs> or did you have a chance to ask, you know, all different ways that you can word this where the prosecutor wants to piggyback, get, get, you know, ride on the fact that there really was an invocation of silence that can't be commented on, but in a sort of 
backdoor way is trying to get the jury to know that it was an area that was not covered for whatever reason, speculative or otherwise, that that was not something that the defendant was willing to talk about or provided a sufficient answer to. You see where I'm going with this. So this is a very complex reason why, and it does happen a lot, where there isn't a waiver of rights and then there becomes one in the process. And of course, the jury can't hear about any of that. Yet, the prosecution has some ammunition to talk about what was discussed, but what they try and do oftentimes is twist that around to say, you know, during the course of this interview, you you wanted to know, you know, where he was on March 7th, and he didn't give you a satisfactory answer, <laughs> you know? So, so it really is commenting on that right to remain silent, and a lot of judges will allow that even though, you know, it's a trick. And it's really not honest when it comes to what the prosecutions are trying to achieve here. But again, and, that, and by the way, that can happen even if the defendant doesn't take the stand. So if you look back at why this is such an important right that we have and why it's so foolish for someone to just waive that right at any time, when they're being told that they have that right, um, you know, you know, they're they're just giving someone else an opportunity to twist things, present it in whatever way they want, and don't forget, these are all people that are going to perceive that the person's guilty no matter what they say, which is again the essence of that right, you know. And if you think about it, the combination of the right to remain silent and the right to counsel, because what is the right to counsel? The right to assistance of someone who's trained in the law to challenge evidence, to be your representative, but more importantly, your spokesperson, so that you're not the one talking um, in those scenarios. So that the statements that come down to legal principles and how burdens of proof are there and whether or not they've been met are addressed by somebody who can speak on behalf of somebody else. Because otherwise, the right to remain silent doesn't mean anything, right? So if we didn't have the right to counsel and someone gets brought in, they don't have a quote-unquote spokesperson or representative, how can you exercise your right to remain silent? Because you'd have to talk if you're going to do anything, right? So, so they're intertwined. They're, they're both very important as part of the process. And when we see these attempts for the prosecution to, to twist things around in such a way that they really want to bypass it. They really want to leave the jury with the impression that what they know is actually an invocation of a right. They want it to appear that it's tied to dishonesty in some way, which is exactly what's forbidden. But it's an old trick, and we see it a lot. And... Um, you know, it's just one of those areas where the exceptions have swallowed the rule. Anyway, time for another break. We'll be right back. So here's another thing you might not know about the decision that a defendant in a case makes about testifying or not. That's the decision of the defendant who's on trial, not the lawyers, not the defense attorney. And I think a lot of people are under the impression that 
the lawyer gets to decide if the client takes the stand or not. Now, the reality is that virtually every person who has counsel is going to consult with that lawyer and ask for some advice, but the ultimate decision is the defendant's, even if it's contrary to what the lawyer thinks that person should do. And you have a situation like Alex Murdoch, who, by the way, as you probably know, was was a lawyer for a significant period of time. So an educated professional. And I don't know, obviously, what that discussion was all about, you know, when they said, do you want to take the stand or not? But I can perceive that common advice from a defense lawyer in that situation would be, I strongly recommend that you not take the stand because of all the factors involved. And I can see someone like Alex Murdoch saying, thanks for your input, but uh, I choose to ignore it and I'm going to take the stand, which is allowed, of course. I mean, if it were if it were up to the lawyers, you can see how fraught with problems that would be. Because what if what if the lawyer said... I'm going to put you on the stand whether you like it or not. Well, then the lawyer is violating that person's right to remain silent, right? Or the lawyer says, there is no way you're allowed to testify. Well, you know, then you're silencing that person in a context where they have, they do have a right to say what they want. We can't have a rule that says they simply cannot. Well, we could. We could have a rule, incidentally, where... <clears throat> the prosecution just cannot bring the accused into the process in any way. And that true, actual, investigative uh, work is the subject of the case. What evidence did they find? What testing did they do on it? What witness statements did they gather? What surveillance? What What can they show without the participation of the defendant in any way? And you'd think that since that's the goal, to avoid the government compelling that participation, that we'd have uh, not so many cases where that becomes the central theme. It's in practically every case. So the, the ambitions of our founding fathers to keep those rights strong and intact, to keep the government's power at bay, and to keep that relationship between citizens and the government one where we are supposed to enjoy the freedoms of being American citizens, United States citizens, um, to allow us to have a pride in our sense of freedom is really gone because of, of these tactics and the way that these things end up playing out. So going back to this decision to testify, again, this is something that the defendant decides that on his or her own with advice, of course. But um, there's a colloquy or a discussion that happens in every case, and it's usually off, it is off the record without the jury being present, where the judge will ask um, the defendant directly, you know, you have an absolute right to remain silent. If you remain silent, I will instruct the jury that they are not to hold that against you in any way. And the prosecution can't even comment on that in any way, although they do try. Um, and then the judge will say, you also have an absolute right to testify, understanding that if you do, 
um, you will be cross-examined by the prosecution, and you will have to answer those questions. So I, I just said that they can't comment on it. And this usually happens, what I'm about to talk about here usually happens with lesser experienced prosecutors that have a lot of creative ways of trying to win the case and overwhelm the defense with a lot of maneuvers. And one of those that I hear a lot of, and this is an improper argument, but I still hear mostly younger prosecutors make this argument, something along the lines of, the defense has offered no explanation as to why A, B, and C happened. Or they have offered no evidence to refute what investigator so-and-so said. Or we've seen nothing from the defense that would counter any of these suggestions. I mean, that's a roundabout way of commenting on someone's uh, right to remain silent or someone not testifying. And the reason I think we see it in younger prosecutors is that they haven't been through <laughs> enough trials to realize that they are messing with the validity of the verdict when they say those kinds of things. Um, you know, yeah, and I, I deal with so many different prosecutors in my career have dealt with so many different, uh, in different jurisdictions, different places over the past 30 years. It's been fascinating to see that some of them are very much uh, dedicated to making sure that they're doing their jobs properly and they're not trying to improperly influence the jury. And I, I've really seen some good prosecutors that will come in and say things like, hey, if, if you don't believe this case beyond a reasonable doubt, then you really should find this defendant not guilty. That's the way the law works. And then they go on to argue why there, there isn't reasonable doubt. And that, that's really the way you're supposed to do it. Instead of trying to overpower, overwhelm, and, and put a lot of gamesmanship into it. But I think that there is also that type of prosecutor that, you know, feels, I'm not going to name names, but it's a phenomenon where they feel that the constitutional rights of a defendant are bothersome or you know, a nuisance and that if they just had the right to the prosecution, that is had the right to just say, Hey, we know he's guilty. Just find him guilty. Trust us type thing. <laughs> They'd probably prefer it that way. Right? So that's an attitude that really, it trickles down all the way to law enforcement and the, you know, it's kind of ingrained into procedures. And I'm not saying this is true everywhere, of course, but we see case after case after case that go up on appeal where th there's no secret that the police were trying to avoid a situation where someone would invoke their rights. And there's a certain amount of dishonesty and trickery that is allowed, specifically allowed, um, in that process based on the age-old assumption, which is 100% not true, but the age-old assumption that an innocent person wouldn't... Um, say something that could hurt them. Crazy, right? Because it, it happens all the time. It happens like all the time. But it's, <laughs> it goes back to cases that it were like in the 1800s where they're talking about how like, well, clearly someone who had nothing to hide wouldn't, you know, find themselves in an awkward position when they're being interviewed. 
boy, is that wrong? But this whole this whole phenomenon of basically treating those rights like they they really were wrongly decided to begin with, and they just stand in the way of a prosecutor's role in obtaining convictions. You add to that a lot of shifts in society as it, you know, and part of this has to do with media, part of this has to do with, you know, unfortunately, politics. A lot of it has to do with people's perception, whether accurate or not, about their own personal safety in our society. And, you know, the more that we are aware of things that are happening, not just in our town, but in adjacent towns and in big cities and all over the country and the way things get reported when really bad things happen, you know, it brings it all closer to home, even if it isn't close to home. But, you know, it, it feeds into this fear that the things that we all work for to have a safe, productive, and uh, rewarding lifestyle, life in our, in our local communities or in our big cities where we live, people view the existence of crime as a threat to that existence and as a loss of control over one's own destiny. And we keep trying to invent ways to make the, the law more or less stronger as it relates to um, taking bad guys and girls off the street and put them in prison. And the sacrifice to the system that is borne out is that sometimes it becomes very inconvenient to respect someone's rights and at the same time fight this war on um, crime. So, so very complicated. But there are people that believe that even though we have those rights, they really are just there to stand in the way of bigger ambitions. So with that, I'll leave you um, till next week. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.